0: Welcome to the Nail Your Nutrition Podcast, a podcast focused on training for endurance activity. I'm Sarah, a registered dietitian and toddler mom in the Washington, D.C. area. I write the blog Bucketless Tummy and focus most of my work on running and endurance athletes, as well as merging the principles of sports nutrition with the principles of intuitive eating.
1: And I'm Marita, a sports dietitian and fellow toddler mom in Pensacola, Florida. I work with endurance athletes at my private practice, Eat to Compete. My goal is to help athletes learn to fuel their training with intuitive eating. We are two sports dietitians and moms here to break down the nutrition science to make training more fun and approachable for you. Whether you're a novice athlete, a weekend warrior, a mom trying to fit in a consistent exercise schedule, or a top finisher at big races, we want to help you understand the importance of fueling well. We're so glad to have you here and would appreciate you spreading the word or sharing this episode or podcast with a friend, family member, training partner, co-worker, or anyone you would think would enjoy it. If you have a minute, please leave us a review wherever you subscribe to your podcast, as that really helps the show. Now let's get to today's episode. Hey, friends. Today's episode, we have Kelly Pritchett, a fellow sports dietitian and associate professor in nutrition and exercise science at Central Washington University. Kelly has worked with both elite and collegiate athletes, as well as with active individuals in her private practice, Tri Dimensional. She's also authored research articles for scientific journals and presented at regional and national conferences. So she's awesome. Her current research interests include post-exercise nutrition for recovery, vitamin D in the athlete, and energy availability in spinal cord injured athletes. And just a quick sidebar, we also both went to the University of Alabama and she lives in Washington where I used to live and I went to college. It's a small world. Today, we have Kelly on to talk to us about iron and endurance athletes. This is a hot topic right now, and we wanted to give you the scientific breakdown. So, we brought Kelly on to chat with us about iron needs for endurance athletes, signs and symptoms of deficiencies, how we can know if we need to supplement with iron, and so much more. Before we dive in, just a quick reminder to rate and review the podcast. When you leave a review, it helps others find the show. Sarah and I don't make any moolah from this podcast, so it's a labor of love for us. When you show your support, we so appreciate it. And honestly, we get so excited and fangirl over new reviews. Seriously, we like read them to each other. Your support means the world to us and helps us to keep providing content for you. Okay, let's chat about Iron with Kelly Pritchett. Yay, Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. So tell us who you are, where
2: you're from what you
1: do, and your predominant areas of research.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me. It's been fun to follow you on social media and Instagram. And um, So I'm Kelly Pritchett. I am from Alabama, but I now live in the state of Washington. Um, I am in an associate professor position at Central Washington University, where I teach in the nutrition and exercise science department. I also work with our athletes on campus. Um, And then, you know, from a research standpoint, anything sports nutrition related, (laughs) I've done. But actually, my first study um, that I did as a grad student, we looked at chocolate milk and exercise recovery. And so I kind of, you know, had some classmates that laughed at the idea, but I think it became popular. Um, And then vitamin D status of athletes. We've done some work with able-bodied athletes as well as athletes with spinal cord injury. Um, And we've done some work looking at, you know, appropriate supplementation to correct vitamin D deficiency and insufficiency. uh, Low energy availability in athletes with spinal cord injury and then cooling strategies for athletes with spinal cord injury. So obviously have an, an interest in the para-athlete population.
1: That's so awesome. I love that. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, what a what a
0: plethora of <laughs> research that you've done, which is super cool and a wealth of information. So, are you the person we can thank for chocolate milk becoming like this holy grail of
2: recovery? <laughs> so, I actually I didn't conduct the first study. It was the first study was um conducted by Dr. Steger out of the University of Indiana in, in 2006. But I remember reading his paper and thinking, Oh, my gosh, this is I want to know more about recovery, because I do think um, it's often overlooked. But I was the second paper.
0: <laughs> wow, that's so yeah. cool. I'm gonna have to remember that because I was literally talking to a client yesterday and today about chocolate milk. Just keep it simple. Just do chocolate. Mm-hmm. Milk. It's cheap. It's yep, it's very effective. So Awesome. Well, I can't wait to get into a lot of your research and pick your brain. But first, I want our audience to just get to know you a little more because you're a mom of three boys and you're an athlete yourself. So tell us a little bit about how you got into, I know you run and I'm not sure if you do any other sports, but how did you get into that? And then how do you balance motherhood, work and activity?
2: Yeah, so I... You know, my lifelong sport has been swimming. I swam in college, the University of Alabama. And honestly, after staring at a black line for years and years, <laughs> I decided I needed to do something outside and um, took up took up running while I was in grad school. It's um, actually kind of how my husband and I met. He he He's pretty fast, so I wouldn't say I run with him, but that was kind of you know how we bonded honestly. And then, you know, I just find that running such a an easy activity, you don't need a lot of equipment to go out and do it. And so with young kids, it's like, you can be back in 45 minutes and <laughs> um, have your run done. You don't have to worry about a flat tire. Um, I have dabbled in triathlons, but I think I got a little frustrated with the bike, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's easy to do. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm intimidated by. Your husband does triathlons, right? I believe he just did the 70.3 Worlds, right? Am I wrong on that?
2: He just did a full um, Ironman um, at Coeur and qualified oh, for Kona, which they just canceled. Oh, I know. So yeah. He's, he's super bummed yeah cordelina is a
1: hard (laughs) course too that is a really Mm -hmm. intense bike yeah that's exciting and it was super hot oh well hopefully he'll get to do in february
2: i hope so yeah in terms of balancing it oh my gosh (laughs) i think we you know i'm fortunate i think my job is very flexible in that um you know, there's typically an hour in my schedule that I can kind of carve out. But the biggest thing is scheduling it um, ahead of time and communicating with my husband who is super helpful on the weekends. If, if I'm training for something, he's, he's awesome. So, you know, I attribute it to that. And then, you know, my boys are active as well. So just, I think it's a lifestyle for the whole family. That's
1: great. Are you training for anything right now?
2: Yes, I am su- supposed to run St. George next weekend, I like that. Um, <laughs> but I've just bruised a rib. This is cr- just a crazy story, but um, I typically swim once a week, just as kind of a um, non-weight-bearing activity and to do a little bit more swimming. And I was getting out of the pool and slipped and landed right on my rib on the side of the pool. So, yeah. no how are you feeling I jogged four miles this morning so and I'm aware of it but it's not it's like a three out of a ten on a pain scale so I think they're bruised so hopefully by next weekend we'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) I know
0: and you were you're gonna do New York too right is that what I saw
2: And New York. That wasn't planned. That's such a quick turnaround. But I had a good opportunity from um, a running group that I work with, uh, Wahoo Running, invited me to go. And so I was like, oh my gosh, New York's on the bucket list. I can't turn this down. We'll just make sure to recover between the two.
1: Oh, that's so exciting. Cool. Well,
2: we'll be following along. Thank you.
1: I hope you feel better too. That's such a (laughs) bummer about your
2: rib. I'm Uh, sorry. No blame. I just feel like I'm such a klutz.
1: <laughs> it always happens the week before a race, right? Something right a some little niggle or something happens yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep oh well, that sounds awesome, and we love to follow along with you all your adventures and your you and your boys and your husband are always doing some cool trail hike, and I'm very jealous of that it looks it looks awesome, so. Definitely follow well, along. You. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what are some of the biggest sports nutrition myths that you hear or see in your world?
2: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I can I can talk about, you know, athletes as well as students. Um, but athletes, I think the biggest one that I see with a lot of um, female athletes is that absence of a menstrual cycle is a normal part of training. And so that's just one thing that, you know, I really feel strongly about. Um, debunking and, you know, explaining what's going on there. Um, the fact that lighter is faster too kind of goes hand in hand with that myth as well. And then from my students, I hear this a lot. <laughs> when I ask what's the most important um, macronutrient from an energy standpoint, a lot of students will say protein, surprisingly. So I find that interesting. And then pre-workout, I hear that all the time. It seems like all the college students are using it before they go into the gym. And so we'll talk a lot about that. Fortunately, in the classroom, I can can do a lot of debunking. Yeah, an educational setting, you can, you could say,
0: this is what I'm going to tell you as your professor. Uh huh. (laughs) We talked about pre workout in our last episode. Um, That has that does seem trending.
1: lately.
2: it does. Yeah. And it's been around for a while. I feel like um, so
1: yeah, I feel like that college atmosphere is definitely all about getting your pre-workout
2: on to try and recover from your hangover the night before <laughs> so you can go work out. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and really any diet fad I mean, that's out there, I tend to hear it. It might be a diet that I haven't heard of, but the students know about it. So that kind of keeps me on my toes when it comes to interesting fads, I suppose. Yeah, I guess you have one ear to the ground there. Like you are are close to what's going
0: on. So <laughs> you can relate yeah. to us because yeah, sometimes like clients will talk about a diet.
2: And I'm like, what are you talking? I've
0: never heard of that. And then I feel silly, but uh-huh. I have just not heard of it.
2: It's so true. They educate me. So it's, it's good. <laughs>
0: Well, we wanted to have you on to talk about iron specifically because we f- we feel that's something that comes up a lot in the endurance community. So can you break down for us what iron is exactly?
2: Yeah. So iron is an essential mineral that's important for oxygen transport in the blood. So when we think about hemoglobin um, and it's an essential um, component of myoglobin, which transports oxygen to the muscle. So very important from a, um, aerobic exercise standpoint. But then, you know, besides that energy production or ATP production, it's important for cognition, um, as well as immunity to just to name a few, um, important roles.
1: Cool. Okay. So obviously iron is important in the body. Why is it important for endurance athletes?
2: Yeah. So it's important for oxygen delivery. I would say that's probably the best way to explain it. Um, and so, you know, from a performance standpoint, if we're not able to deliver oxygen to the muscle, we're going to, we're going to feel fatigued, um, which, you know, comes up a lot in the endurance community. If someone is feeling fatigued, I feel like they always go straight to iron, which it may not be the case. It may be the case. We'll talk more about that.
1: So I actually saw a statistic the other day that up to 90% of female endurance athletes have low ferritin, and male athletes can also have low iron. And what would those signs and symptoms look like? I know you just touched on feeling tired. Are there any other ones that we should be flagging and looking out for?
2: Yeah. So some of the big, the classic symptoms, like you mentioned, this is iron deficiency with or without anemia. Include you know a negative mood state is is common. Um, uh, difficulty concentrating. The big thing with runners, I think, is um, some of the symptoms will mimic overtraining. So they may have a reduced work capacity during training or impaired response to training. They're not seeing those training adaptations take place, um, and ultimately a poor performance. Um, and really, the only way to determine if if the iron is low, is to have a blood test done. Okay, so have to go to our doctor for a blood test. Yes. <laughs> Don't just start taking a supplement.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. And and what should... What should readers ask for? I mean, because there's a few different forms of iron, should they be looking at their hemoglobin? Should they
2: specifically want their ferritin tested? Like in what sort mm-hmm. of
0: ranges should they be looking
2: for? That's a great question. So, just a few things there. Yes, ask for a ferritin. I would um recommend, you know, asking the doctor to to order a ferritin. One thing to remember with ferritin is it's a, an acute phase reactant protein, meaning that With inflammation, it can appear falsely elevated. And so if you think of someone who's chronically, you know, they're training, they maybe have some muscle damage going on, it can appear um, falsely elevated. So as a general rule of thumb, you know, prior to a blood test, I would say, try to avoid um, any intense exercise two days before um, having your blood drawn. You know, going for jog would be fine, but if you're doing something that's super intense, just try to avoid that. First thing in the morning is best, and then in a, um, a well-hydrated state. So that's specific to ferritin. The other markers would be hemoglobin, transferrin saturation, and a, a total iron-binding capacity. So a CBC is what you would you know typically ask for, and in terms of levels, I don't know if you wanted that information, but with ferritin, um, if we want to talk strictly mm-hmm. about ferritin, um, if we're looking at anything under thirty five, would be considered iron depletion, okay? Without anemia or iron depletion, iron depletion, non anemia, um, and then when you go, you see a ferritin under twelve. Um, that's typically indicative of iron deficiency anemia, although you do need to look at hemoglobin in conjunction with that to determine.
1: Can you tell us briefly what ferritin is exactly?
2: Yes. (laughs) So ferritin is our stored, our iron stores. So it tells us about, um, our iron stores in the body. So you mentioned, you know, any level before 12 or below 12 could
0: be iron deficient Anemia, and that's when Mm -hmm. the symptoms will be present. Um, Maybe not all of them. I'm not sure about that, but um, Mm -hmm. it's obviously going to impact performance and recovery. And you personally have a story of low ferritin. Is that right? Do you (laughs) want to share that?
2: Yeah, I can I can share that. Um, So this was prior to the 2018 Boston Marathon. Um, I was started feeling like kind of fatigued and had trouble. Um, not finishing long runs, but I would get towards the end of a long run and just feel like I was bonking. So maybe you know, 15 miles into a 20 mile run, I would feel horrible um, and just like I wanted to lie in the ditch. Honestly, <laughs> um, and so I was like, I don't know what's going on. I've had I've had on and off have had issues with iron in the past. Um, I do have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition that affects the thyroid. And so, you know, sometimes it's common to see that with, with Hashimoto's, but, um, I assumed that it was my thyroid. I didn't know it was my iron. So I went straight to my endocrinologist and this was probably two weeks before the marathon, great timing. Um, and she did my blood work and she always does a ferritin and, um, she said, your thyroid levels are fine, but your ferritin is seven. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm going to turn this around. But, um, I went on to run the marathon. It wasn't a great marathon. Well, you, that was the year that it was like, we were swimming, not running <laughs> because of the rain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it took a couple months to, to reverse, but, um, yeah, so I'm always re- super aware, and this is kind of what sparked my interest in iron and learning a little bit more about it from a research perspective.
1: Yeah, so what's the best way for athletes to improve their ferritin stores? What What did you do, and what does the research say?
2: Yeah, so I I took a supplement because mine was so low. Um, now, if I and this is probably different depending on, you know, each dietitian may have. A, a different protocol, but I, with my athletes, I would look at diet first. So we do a dietary assessment and say, you know, if it's not super low, let's say it's around thirty-five, we would start there. Um, and you know, but from what in terms of what I did, I did take a supplement um, to to correct that. And I like to use a fer. What's it called? A ferrous polysaccharide or ferrix. That's the product that. I like, and I'll alternate that with thorn, which is a ferrous bisglycinate. And so that worked for me. Um, But again, you know, I like to start with food if it's an athlete that's, you know, borderline low. I think we want most athletes to be above 35, although it's really challenging to link a value to performance. I think a lot of people, and I hear this too from a lot of like cross country coaches that your ferritin needs to be, 70, or they have this like idealistic value. Um, But there's, there's really no evidence um, that once you're, you know, above 35, that that higher is going to be better.
1: Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. When you look at your diet, what exactly do you mean by that? More protein, spreading it out throughout the day? Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the main thing with with um, supplementation that I would really stress is that that needs to be overseen or supervised by a dietitian or a physician. So before taking a supplement, you know, speak to your doctor, your dietitian, um, doing a dietary assessment. You know, some things that I look for is, you know, when are, when is the person when is the athlete having their coffee? Um, When are they having their dairy with meals? So, you know, one um, strategy that I would suggest is avoid dairy, coffee and tea um, within an hour before or after a meal. If you're concerned about iron, um, those things are going to decrease the absorption of iron. Cooking with cast iron skillets. So the food that you're cooking will absorb um, the iron, which increases the bioavailability of iron in that meal um, consuming heme rich, um, iron foods such as like beef, eggs, tuna, lamb. We don't eat kangaroo here, but <laughs> uh, side note kangaroo, um, cause a lot of the research on iron has actually been done in Australia. And so I just found that super interesting. And in, in the papers, they bring up kangaroo.
0: I'm going to keep that in my po- back pocket for my next trivia.
2: Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, Oysters, uh, dark chocolate as well. So there's a there's a good a good reason to eat dark chocolate, I would argue, um, although it tastes good as well. Um, and then if we look at you know plant based um, ideas, almonds, figs, apricots, um, kidney beans, tofu, you want to pair those what we call non-heme iron sources with with vitamin C. Um, and so, at least 50 milligrams of vitamin C can improve uh, um, the absorption by about threefold. Um, and 50 milligrams is like a half a cup of pineapple, a half a cup of strawberries, um, bell peppers, broccoli, that type of thing. Um, and then, two: if someone's taking an iron supplement, they want to pair that with um, with a vitamin C-rich food, too, and avoid the calcium. And the, co- and the coffee.
1: So it kind of sounds to me like don't take your iron supplement in the morning
2: then for coffee, all the calcium and all that and tea. So that's a that's actually a, a great um, question. And we can dive into to hepcidin.
0: Yeah, I wanted to touch on Hepsidin. That would be great.
2: So really, okay, so if you need to take a supplement, it's And the PM is the the best time or the only time for you, that's better than nothing. So don't get me wrong there. But if you're looking at the optimal time from an absorption standpoint, um, Dr. Peeling, uh, who is from Western Australia, they've done a lot of work in this area. Um, The suggestion is 30 minutes after your morning workout to take your iron supplement. So if you're, yeah, if you're going to have coffee, then maybe do your coffee before the workout, come back, have your supplement with a meal. And this has to do with hepcidin, which is a a key hormone um, that increases throughout the day, but also increases with inflammation. And so, we typically see hepcidin peak about 3 hours post workout and so yeah so you want to get the supplement in um, before we see that increase oh. in hepcidin so hepcidin basically decreases iron absorption so it does the opposite of what we want
1: <laughs> so avoid it three so it has that peak at 3 hours so you want to avoid it there and then after that does that fall off
2: well so it continues to increase throughout the day uh, so, yeah, oh. so it has a diurnal pattern, which just means that it continues to to, yeah, to increase throughout the day, which is gonna decrease your iron absorption. I did not know that, but it's good to know, yeah. and uh, another interesting study that they just did, they didn't find an association was they wanted to link low carb intake with low iron. Mm-hmm. um, and the thinking was that, with the low carb or low glycogen we tend to see higher interleukin 6 or higher inflammatory cytokines so they were thinking that that would impact hepcidin which would impact iron status and again it's just a preliminary study so you know maybe there is something there it makes sense from a mechanism standpoint but um they didn't find anything
1: have you come across any research that shows that plant-based athletes are more susceptible to
2: being low in iron That's a good, that's a great question. I think we tend to think that. um, But what I have found is that with plant-based athletes or vegan athletes, they tend to be on the lower end of normal. So meeting your iron needs is possible when animal products are excluded. Uh, And in fact, some plant foods contain components like vitamin C, for example, um, which help with absorption. And the other thing too that's kind of interesting is they may not be consuming things that inhibit. So calcium, ri- more calcium rich foods, you know, so there may be a protective effect there, but no, not necessarily. Do iron supplements, I want to
0: dig into that a little bit. You mentioned iron bisphosphonate. So mm-hmm. are there, is there a certain type that someone should be looking for? Is it person to person dependent upon other factors for that person's lifestyle or diet?
2: yeah, so ferrous sulfate is the gold standard, and you've probably seen it prescribed the most by a physician, but it's it's typically what's used in research. Um, however, it's it's probably in um, ferrous gluconate, those two are are probably the most commonly used. But with the ferrous sulfate, you do tend to have some some GI symptoms, and it's pretty individual ferrous polysaccharide and bisglycinate um, have been shown to be more bioavailability and again is this really varies person to person but um, I think less GI symptoms perhaps with these two and that's you know maybe more anecdotal that just made me think of of something else
0: that you mentioned cast iron cooking can be a great way to increase iron have you heard of
1: lucky fish
2: yeah that's a, that's a great that's a great question. That's something that actually included that in my Runner's World article as a, as a possible way to increase the iron content of a mill. And so you know, it's a little fish that, you know, similar to a cast iron pot. it's gonna, the food actually absorbs some iron from the fish. And so there have been a few research studies done with it, not a whole lot that show that, you know, it may help correct or help with iron status. I don't know that I would say an iron deficiency anemia, you could completely reverse that with the iron fish.
0: Yeah. I came across that with like baby led weaning. Like they talk yeah. about focus on iron for babies. Um, but I can totally see it with athletes now that, I'm like,
1: yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's so interesting. I personally take an iron um, supplement and I take it with, two vitamin C gummies. And so now I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder if that's the best thing to be doing. Is that something that we should be doing? Or should I have more Mm -hmm. like whole food sources, like a glass of orange juice or something like that?
2: I think either would work fine as long as you're getting the 50 milligrams of vitamin C. I use emergency with mine in... It's just kind of...
1: Uh, oh, I didn't even yeah. think about that. Yeah. I like the
2: taste of emergency too. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it works. Yeah. The other thing too that I was going to mention with supplements is um, for people that do tend to have more like GI side effects, you know, like nausea, constipation, um, abdominal pain, that type of thing, um, they can do alternate day dosing. So you might supplement Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, has been shown to have comparable outcomes um, to taking it daily over an eight-week period with less GI symptoms. So just something to note for those that struggle with it.
1: Or forget to take their their supplements like I do.
2: <laughs> Same. <laughs> That's the hardest part. <laughs> oh, that is good to know. Yeah. That's good to know. Yes. <laughs>
1: Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your recent project on LEAED history and the 2020 female OTM runners? Sorry, I'm reading.
0: I'm like, what? <laughs> that was Sarah totally question. added this
1: question.
2: <laughs> the low energy availability, right? That's what. That oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I added that yes. <laughs> I know the, all the acronyms. So we, gosh, this was like right before uh, COVID hit. Is it seems like a long time ago but um so we were able to survey um female um u.s olympic trial marathon competitor competitors when i saying participants (laughs) um and we had a sample size of about 150 female athletes that that answered this online questionnaire it was about 35 questions um which i believe you know the number of athletes that participated was around 400. So we got a decent, I feel like a decent sample. Uh, But we asked questions about their training volume, their weight control methods, um, self reported. So self reported, just note that current or past um, eating disorder. And so what we found, which was to me, this was pretty astounding. And this paper is not out yet. We um, are going to submit it for publication soon. So hopefully it will come out. But we found that um, a third of the participants or 32% of the participants reported um, a previous diagnosis of an eating disorder. And so um, within that, that includes um, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, or EDNOS. I'll define the acronym, eating disorders not otherwise specified. And then 6% reported a current diagnosis of an eating disorder. So again, it's um, self report. Um, and then we found that runners who reported a past or current eating disorder were significantly more likely to experience weight dissatisfaction. And restricting or reducing food intake in the three months leading up to the marathon. Wow. Yeah, I know. So kind of crazy, right? Um, You know, really, I think the take home from this is that, you know, athletes who've or runners who've had a history of an eating disorder, this may impact their weight control methods and increase those feelings of body dissatisfaction. Um, And we're actually going to put out a survey. I have two grad students um, that are going to work on this project this year where we're putting the same survey out to um, recreational runners and um, uh, collegiate cross-country runners. So we're going to try to build and look at um, other populations that maybe go undetected, and I think recreational – you know, I don't know what you guys see in in practice, but I do think it's often overlooked. And we always tend to talk about the elite population, but
1: it's very prevalent, especially in in the endurance
2: world. For yeah, sure.
1: yeah. But thirty two percent that is significant mm-hmm. yeah, for that sample size. Yeah, yeah.
2: It was it was crazy. I didn't think. I mean, I, I think we know that with aesthetic sports and endurance sports, where you know weight is a factor per se, or can be a factor. You know, I think that we kind of knew this going in, but still, to me, it's pretty shocking.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's, that's significant. And I'm excited to read that paper and those results though. That'll be interesting. Hopefully that'll be published soon.
2: Yeah. I think if I, if we could redo it, I would love to have had a question about like access to a dietitian and really knowing Mm -hmm. a little bit more about that and um, if those athletes found that to be beneficial or you know so maybe that's another future study
1: for sure for sure
0: yeah
2: well we look forward to, to seeing that
0: yeah and, and all the stuff with red S and like all of the other I'm curious now about more data from these people like how else are they affected is it cognitively is it cardiovascularly yep. is it
2: emotionally yep. um, all of the mm-hmm. other parts of it like
0: mm-hmm.
2: that we know plays in it's really fascinating yeah, definitely. And I think we'll see more. And, you know, iron too is another one. I mean, I think all the components mm-hmm. of red S, since we are talking about iron today, but I do think there's just just so much work to be done looking at all of the different um, signs and symptoms associated with red S. Yeah, totally. I was thinking the same thing when you were talking, like specifically since we were talking
0: mm-hmm. about iron today, those who are low in energy availability are likely low in iron. So. Yeah. Yeah being on the lookout. Yeah, exactly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of off the cusp, Kelly, but any interesting research you can tell us um, that you've done or that you found about vitamin D specifically for endurance athletes?
2: For, so I can speak, I'm trying to think, um, thinking back to my vitamin D work. Um, with the, the studies that we did here at, at Central, we looked at We didn't look at endurance athletes. So we looked at football and rugby and we found that um, a high percentage were vitamin D insufficient, not necessarily deficient. And we gave them a, it was an oral supplement. It was only a thousand international units of vitamin D. So at the time we didn't know much about how much was needed to increase vitamin D status. Um, And we basically found that it didn't prevent the seasonal decline in vitamin D status. So you need more essentially. Now, with endurance athletes, I know there's been some work with like runners in the state of Louisiana where you would expect them to um, have higher levels of vitamin D because they're below that, um, the latitude you know, that's 10, we tend to see a decrease in vitamin D. Um, but that actual study, I think still showed that they were at risk for vitamin D, um, insufficiency and deficiency regardless. And so, you know, some things to think about like sunscreen use, what time of day they're out, or are they out from 10 to two, um, doing their runs and it tended to be in the morning or afternoon, I believe. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into vitamin wow. D. Yeah. And I don't know if you want me to speak about athletes with spinal cord injuries, but with that population, we did find, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but it was a really high, um, number of athletes that had insufficient or deficient right, status. Right. Um, you know, because of things like thermal regulation going out into, um, the sun is, maybe uncomfortable. Um, so they, they have issues with cooling or difficult time cooling. So yeah. And then we used a supplementation protocol, um, which is used by the USOC, um, for their athletes. And we found that it, um, reversed insufficiency Mm -hmm. Well, basically brought all of the athletes to an adequate vitamin D status. Right. Um, was something like ninety eight percent of the athletes um, after the three month um, sliding scale supplementation protocol that we use? Wow,
1: that's a, that's amazing. That's
2: great. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: so awesome. Oh, Kelly, well, thank you for letting us pick
2: your brain today. Of course, thanks for having me. It's been. So enlightening.
1: Where can people follow along with you and potentially work with you? I know you have a nutrition coaching practice that you, (laughs) I think you have it combined with your husband, right? Like he does the, the run coaching, triathlon coaching, and then you do the nutrition services. Is that correct?
2: Yes. We're, it's very small. I will say that meaning that (laughs) we don't have a lot of time, but when we do, you know, we take on a few athletes. So my husband does the run coaching and then I do the nutrition part. So it's kind of just a fun fun side gig that we have. And that's um, tridimensionalconsulting.com. But in terms of Instagram, it's rd or um, Inside so, Sports Nutrition is, is a new page that um, I've started with Namrita Kumar um, to kind of dive into a little bit more of the research or science side of things for people that really want to read that. <laughs> Us. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that new page. We'll link well, to thank- it in the show notes. I think you guys are doing a great mm-hmm. job. It, it's really interesting too, like when you're linking to the research on female athletes or menstrual cycles, yep. we might have to have you back on to talk about that. Yeah,
2: Definitely. I think there's a lot of miscon. Well, we don't have a lot of research there. So it's, yeah, something that needs to be built on.
1: Yes, an area of research that we would hope gets
2: more attention as the years
1: go on, for sure.
2: Definitely. Oh,
1: Kelly, thank you so much. We'll link to all of your studies and all the supplements you mentioned in the show notes and where we can uh, follow along with you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review so others can find it more easily. You can also stay in touch by joining our Facebook group, Nutrition for Runners. If you have any requests for future episode topics and more, email us at NailYourNutritionCourse1 at
2: gmail.com. Happy fueling!